0: it is a center for higher learning it is a place with centuries of secrets in its shadowed halls This is where you have come to learn the mysteries of the cosmos. Welcome to the Miskatonic University
1: Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Miskatonic University Podcast, Episode 70. This is the podcast dedicated to Call of Cthulhu and other horror and Lovecraft-related role-playing
2: games. I'm Keeper Dan. I'm Keeper Scott, and this episode means war. We're going to cover topics that use combat as a setting, backdrop, or character history.
0: I'm Keeper Murph. To help accomplish this, we brought in a ringer focused on World War II, line lead for Cubicle 7's World War Cthulhu line, the one and only Scott Dorward.
2: Thank you, sir. Thank you. Yay, welcome. <laughs> yeah, it's it's wonderful to be here. Thank you very much for having me on the show. <laughs> Thank you for being on. Good time.
1: And for being a ringer replacement keeper, because our uh, dear John is not sounding so good. Oh, no. gosh,
2: yes. I, I I hope he recovers he, soon. He sounded terrible. He tried, he but it, it yeah. just
1: did not work, so... No. It is a mercy on yeah, him and like, on the yeah, listeners yeah. that he is not currently on the show. Hey, yeah,
2: he, he 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 was croaking and baying like a deep one. It was quite eerie. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah he had that uh, that airy voice of a ninety year old throat cancer patient. It was right. Um, it, was, it sounded pretty terrible. Yeah.
1: Let's go into the campus crier.
2: Miskatonic University Campus Crier.
1: Campus Crier's Miskatonic U student paper. Here's going to go through feedback and news. This episode's recorded on January 18th,
0: 2015. Uh, first up is Arkham Gazette, issue number three, Kickstarter, has been completed.
1: Yay!
0: Yeah, it's successfully funded and met some stretch goals, and congratulations, Mr. Brett Kramer.
1: Yeah, absolutely. When you're asking for 1500 also- and get almost 7000 that's you know, fantastic. Yeah,
0: that's uh, yeah, that's quite a quite an accomplishment. Also, uh this morning, for um, those of you who have backed it, uh, he has released a preview of issue number three to backers in a PDF form. So, uh, if you've backed it, go and grab your preview for issue number three.
1: Nice. And then the short film that we had discussed in the last couple episodes, Portal to Hell. It successfully funded.
0: Did it really? Yep. Gosh. Oh, my gosh. That's so, so
1: there will be a short film with Roddy Piper battling
0: Cthulhu. <laughs> I, I, I don't know whether to be excited or appalled, so I'll try to be uh, <laughs> I'm kind of on the same boat with you there. I didn't really think this would go through, but hey, there you <laughs> go.
1: It did it. And the idea was strong enough that a production company is actually talking to them and, uh, about the idea of doing a more
0: of a full-length feature. <laughs> <That's insane. laughs> well,
1: hopefully
0: it's yeah. made. It'd be pretty interesting to see.
2: Yeah, I, I, I think, if if nothing else, it will be interesting.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. It's just going to be
1: fun and silly, and I'm thrilled and excited to see what this thing is.
2: It, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I'm I'm I <laughs> am i i can not wait to see it, but yeah, it's it's gonna be strange.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> yeah, there,
0: there's no doubting that. This is gonna be just weird. <laughs> uh next up, Cthulhu happens in Tales of Mr. Ree, number two from Devil's Do.
1: Yeah, this is a comic series I wasn't previously really familiar with, but uh, the book is called Tales of Mister Mystery, and issue number two, there's a picture of the cover, and it has a great big Cthulhu looming Giant. over a city. Yeah,
0: yeah. it looks quite huge. Yeah, I'm not really sure of this uh, this either. I haven't heard of this. So I'm going to have to go back and read, read it and the previous issue to see what the deal is.
1: Yeah, and, and the issue number two on the website that, go-to here it actually you can just read it on the website for free it's
0: yeah it's free we have a link in the show notes.
1: so you know if you're curious just to see what they do with cthulhu well there you go you can just read it
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh feed the shoggoth kickstarter from badger has uh evidently been possibly delayed we're not entirely certain from maybe up to 12 weeks uh, due to some printer issues that he's having. Uh, He may have to switch to an overseas printer, but we have a uh, link to the update that he sent out uh, via Kickstarter in the show notes as well. Yeah, those
1: production aspects of getting these campaigns out is just always a roll of the dice.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah, evidently the the problem was his uh, he had based his quotes off of when he got quotes Mm. last year. And now when he went back to send the items to the printers, the uh, uh, prices have increased significantly enough to make him have to look overseas to a different printer. So why don't you do this one, Scott, since this is, uh, (laughs) I mean, slightly related to you, I guess.
2: Uh, yes. Well, I, d- I did work on it. So, um, yes, Cubicle 7's Cthulhu Britannica box set is up for pre order. Uh, if you order now, you will get the PDFs immediately, but the box set itself, um, I'm not entirely sure when it's out, but it'll be fairly soon. Uh, so, you know, if this is the one that was kickstarted last year very successfully, uh, it contains a lot of stuff. I mean, it's a, a full guide to London. Uh, it's got a keeper's book with lots and lots of um, kind of cults and scenario hooks and mythos nasties in there. It's got a book with three scenarios and it's got lots of very strange little handouts stuck in there as well. So it should be a lot of fun. Yeah, that's a good looking box set. That's terrific.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm fairly excited about that. I am want to see if I can't swing it. I think it's, what is it, 57 pounds, 56 pounds? <laughs>
2: that that's um yes yes that uh, oh i can't actually remember whether that's for the pdfs or i think no, that's no,
0: that's, the for, that's the pre-order for the for the box set yeah gotcha um, oh, which translates good. to about ninety ninety two dollars us yes and then shipping yeah and then shipping so run around, around 100 bucks i would imagine excellent
1: and for beer lovers out there, there is a Lovecraft branded beer that you can bring to your next kegger at, uh, on Piscatonic campus. Just don't let any of the campus uh, faculty find it. it it's
0: weird. So Lovecraft yeah. beer. Well, it's a, it's a honey beer. Um, it it looks quite good. I don't know. I, don't know. I guess yeah.
2: what well, I, I was kind of—I I felt like they missed the trick there. You know, considering that it's a honey beer, they should have called it space mead.
0: Oh, that would have been brilliant, wouldn't it? That would have been really good. Yeah, I don't know why they didn't think of that. I guess they just didn't—maybe because it's not a mead, so you can't label it as a mead. Oh, quite possibly. But either way, yeah, honey beer.
2: Yeah, yeah, and 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 possibly they didn't want to put the disclaimer on there about it not actually protecting you from the vacuum of space, but <laughs> <laughs> Law- lawyers ruin everything. <laughs>
1: Well, plus, if they did that, then only the um, a much more limited selection of people would understand what that was supposed to mean. Yeah,
0: I mean, it would have been very, very niche.
1: The general public can look might have a better chance just recognizing his name and face. Very true. Yes.
0: Uh, the Thing on the Doorstep, this is the film that won the um, Best Feature Film Award at the 2013 Lovecraft Film Festival in Portland. It is finally out on DVD, and you can go and pick that up over at Arkham Bazaar for 15 bones. we got a link in the show notes.
1: Yay. This is the Excellent. same one that we had mentioned previously, isn't it?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. We've been waiting for this one to come out
1: uh,
2: yeah. for quite a while. Yeah, that, I mean, then, the trailer's been up on YouTube for oh, a couple of years now, hasn't it? A couple of years, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a really good trailer, so I'm looking forward to seeing the full thing. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm.
2: that is awesome.
0: I'm just glad they finally found somebody to, I guess, to distribute it. I guess that was how old up I have no idea, but um, I'm happy to see it finally out.
1: Yeah, and we got an update from uh, Necronomicon Providence. They've updated the gaming section. And they're now taking submissions from people looking to run a game at the convention. We're gonna have a link on the website that takes to their games page.
0: Very cool. Uh they also mentioned that they have updated the game location and, and since the last con. Uh it's gonna be all the game stuff's gonna be right around the corner at the Omni Hotel, which is gonna provide more room, they said, and also have uh catering trucks and stuff available right outside the Omni as well. So that should be more convenient for the gamers.
1: Yeah. And I love on their site that they have a nice big picture of Cthulhu Wars. Yeah. Awesome. Then a, a cool thing that came out is that the website Die Hard Game Fan, they put out their 2014 Tabletop Gaming Awards. Which is basically just, you know, the the crew of that site goes through and just kind of nominates Ooh. and... Awards. They do a pretty good job of, of yeah. Of, of they selection. actually they're, so were, I, they're uh, quite good at choosing things.
0: Yeah, without a doubt.
1: And there's a number of mythos and Cthulhu related things in there that fit within our purview. Yeah, yeah. You know, first one is the best board slash card game went to the Doom that came to Atlantic City.
0: Very cool. That's the one I haven't been able to to play yet. I really want to play that one and just haven't been able to get it. So I'll have to. Definitely search that one out now.
1: Yeah. I'm really glad to see that that turned out to be such a good game, given its mm. turbulent history and getting it actually <laughs> on the shelves. Right. Yes. Which is all written uh, up best? on the page. <laughs>
0: <For> the <A-war>. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> they describe the history if you're not familiar with it. So, yeah, go read yeah, that. It's quite, it's, a, it's amazing it's that it's even a
0: game. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty impressive. Uh, best gaming magazine. We had a runner-up for uh, Brett Kramer's own, the Arkham Gazette, which is very cool. Yeah, congratulations, Brett! Again, that three is... issues, uh, two issues only. You know, that's that's really impressive. <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, no kidding. And the books. company he's keeping are the winner was White Dwarf,
0: which right? is a magazine that's been out for decades. Yeah, that's not the eight hundred pound gorilla in the room at all. I mean, yeah.
1: <laughs> and then Gygax magazine which is fairly right. new, but it has
2: freaking Gygax in the title.
0: <laughs> right. I mean, come on. That's pretty good company, I have to admit.
2: Yeah. Yeah, but, I mean, the Arkham Gazette is, is an impressive publication. I mean, It's, it's a, a really eclectic mixture of stuff, and Brett yeah. does a fantastic job with it.
0: Mm-hmm. He really does. I mean, he, you can tell, he, I mean, he really pours his heart into that, every issue, and it, it, it shows. Yes. Best tabletop-based fiction runner-up was Delta Green Tales from the Failed Anatomies. Uh, this was the Kickstarter from last year, I think, from Dennis Duttwiller and Shane Ivey. It's a really, really good fiction anthology from Delta Green. Um, I, I back this one as well, and um, it's well worth getting if you haven't read it yet.
1: Yeah, it's nice to see some Delta Green stuff in here.
0: Yeah, it's really cool. I'm glad to see it up there as well.
1: Then best artwork for a runner-up? Is Call of Cthulhu 7th edition core rulebook very mm. cool? Which I can totally agree with. Oh,
2: there's, there's some th- wonderful stuff in there,
0: mm-hmm. yep. It, especially since the first full color edition, so it uh it mm. really sets it off quite well, yeah. Best remake release or re release, I should say, uh, went to Call of Cthulhu Horror in the Orient Express, um, which is kind of a no brainer considering, mm. yeah, it is. Bloody huge and awesome!
1: Yeah, the uh, the it's, scope it's, and scale of this re-release is kind of unprecedented.
0: Yeah, I mean it's seven hundred thousand words. I think that <laughs> it puts it well above any other campaign setting um, ever. Yeah, you know what I mean it's just it's just huge. Uh, some notables in the same category, though. Runners up were uh, Call of Cthulhu Deluxe. And then Cthulhu Velvet Pauls on Cthulhu's Trail. All three of those were in the best remake re-release category. hmm So it's very cool.
1: Then Best Adventure or Collection or Campaign. That went to Golden Goblin's Tales of the Crescent City. Adventures in Jazz Era New Orleans. So congratulations to uh Oscar on that. That's outstanding.
0: Yeah, very good.
1: And that's one of those few ones where the um, last year's winner was his uh, uh, Islands of Ignorance, the third Cthulhu Companion.
0: Nice. Yeah, it's kind of, that's kind of rare um, to see the same publisher hit the mm-hmm. same, especially a small publisher. You know, hit the same award mm-hmm. twice in a row. I
2: think yeah. he's
0: on a roll. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. He really is. Uh, just some other notes. I did get in the box set of Horror on the Orient Express. It's absolutely huge, uh, and it's yeah. fantastically awesome. My sympathies well, to your
2: mail carrier. Well, it's, yeah. it's about it's about the same size as the actual train, isn't
0: it? It is. It's very <laughs> close. It weighs almost as much as a Pullman car, so uh, it's quite <laughs> it's quite impressive. Um, it's it, it really is a fantastic box set. Uh, I know it's. If you've seen it on the shelves yet, it, I mean it it is 120 bucks, but I'm telling you it's it's fantastic.
1: Well, plus you got the Kickstarter goodies.
0: I did. I got the um I got a lot of extra stuff with it, I have to admit. All sorts of stuff. Yeah. I mean it's too much to too much to even mention. I, the shirt, the, the stickers and patches and <laughs> all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Did did you get the phase? I, I didn't get the Fez. Um,
2: I, I already I, I think, have
0: some Fezes, but... I,
2: I was about to say, I, I, I can see you looking jaunty in a Fez.
0: I have, I have a, a very nice Fez. Uh, and then I, I bought a uh, chapeau at Gen Con that was uh, fantastic that I wore around the whole time. Uh, so okay. I didn't really need the Fez. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I didn't get the Fez. I know some people who got the steamer trunk version, um, and they were absolutely smitten with that as well.
1: Did it actually arrive in a steamer trunk?
0: Um, I'm not. I don't know. If, with. I don't think that it actually arrived in the steamer trunk because they're shipping in, in sections. So they want to get the campaign out to people first. So this yeah. first round shipping uh, sent out like the small goodies, the box set, and then um, that's pretty much it, right? There, and okay. then some other some other the little stuff that was printed and, and they had it on hand to send out.
1: So Steamer uh, Trunk is more of just a name of the level. There's not no, actually... Just, there no, actually yeah, is a physical Steamer Trunk involved? Yeah. Wow. Yeah,
0: that's... A, I think Badger <laughs> got that one. That's the uh, top-level tier. If you backed a whore, it was... Uh, that was the, <laughs> the creme de la creme.
2: That's awesome. You've you, you got, you got to expect... You've got to respect any stretch goal
0: that you can actually use to hide bodies in. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I don't know how big said steamer trunk is. That might be the catch, but ah. I mean it has to be big enough to hold this box set, and that on its own makes it not tiny, right? Yeah. I, <laughs> no. <laughs> that that'll be fairly chunky. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and then all of the extras that came with it um, are designed to fit inside said steamer trunk. So I imagine it's pretty. It's it's a it's a respectable size. I doubt yeah. it's like a full-sized actual steamer trunk, but either way.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to photos when people start getting those. <laughs> yeah, that should be quite interesting. The unboxing video of opening a steamer trunk. <laughs>
0: yeah. This is my steamer trunk. I did. They did send some... Um, you know, the old uh, 20s style uh, traveling stickers, you know, that you would stick yeah. on your st- steamer trunks. I got a package of those, too. So, you know, uh, with uh, ports of call along the Orient Express. Excellent. So those are pretty cool. Nice. Um, I got my train tickets, passports, um, all sorts of handouts and stuff like that. It was very, very, very cool. Cool. On top of these, you know nine and a half pounds of books (laughs) yeah
1: yeah it's all just doodads on top of the game itself
0: (laughs) yeah i mean that's the thing that uh in the size of the books themselves i mean when compared to the original is just ridiculous um the the first book uh the section from london to the italian alps uh in the original wasn't a very large book you know it's maybe 70 pages or so i guess uh this one's something like 300 right around um, wow. and they're all kind of like that sized um there's some smaller ones one of them is uh like a book full of npcs um that you can just flip through and it's it's nothing but it's called strangers on the train Uh, And it's just filled with uh, NPCs on one page, stats on the back, and little space for notes for each one. And it's, you know, it's, um, what is it? Let's see. It's 90 pages of them. So, I mean, there's there's littler books as well, but I mean, the main content books are are bloody huge. Wow.
3: So cool.
0: It's pretty awesome. I'm happy with it. (laughs) Even the little A's and stuff, I think it was worth it
1: yeah yeah that's the thing is that whenever these things show up you forget all about the time yeah. that it <laughs> took to get it all put together
0: yeah i mean because that's all the all the griping and everything is all based on anticipation you know mm-hmm. that's the thing about that as well i guess yeah. so once it finally shows up everybody kind of calms down and just ogles at its magnificence when
1: it's in your hands and it, it's making your table groan under the
0: weight <laughs> then
2: you're just like yeah ah. all is all is forgiven
0: Yes. Yeah, and I have to give them props for their box. Their box is really a, a fantastic box. It's not like the cheap boxes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, better, it's a better box quality than the old D&D box sets from second edition. Um, I mean, it's a really thick and heavy-duty box, and it, it has to be to hold these books, obviously. Yeah, oh, yeah otherwise exactly. it's split. Yeah, yeah it's split or bend, and it doesn't at all. I mean, it's a sturdy, really heavy-duty box, so it's, cool. it's quite nice
1: then uh, you also got in another item from oh that's right yeah I got
0: in the uh, I got in my uh, Warpo Spawn of Cthulhu figurine Um, it it came the other day I got the email from Warpo saying they finally released the shipment through customs and Mm -hmm. then I got that email and literally the next day I got the Warpo figurine in the mail so I don't know how in the hell they managed that if they delayed saying that they got it so they could ship some first but Either way, I'm it, it, I got it in. It's it's pretty cool. I got the one that's on the card. Um so I have my little legends of Cthulhu spawn the Cthulhu here. And um it's really cool looking. It's a really fantastic job that they did. And he's got his little necronomicon. Yeah, he's in the on the card, his his wings attach um separately. So his wings are floating in the card behind him and his little necronomicon is in the on there in there with them um but he looks really really good. Um it, so You're
1: not cool. going to take him out of the bubble?
0: <laughs> no, I'm not going to take him out of the bubble. I, I should have got <laughs> two. Um I should have bought two of them and didn't. So yeah. I might try and pick a second one up. Um at some other point. But um I'm happy with what I have here, so.
1: Cool. <laughs> yeah, I wish I had been able to get in on getting a figure for that at the time I was able to afford getting the um at the level where you just get the giant desktop image of their artwork. Right. Which is nice. I enjoy yeah, that.
0: Uh, but it's not uh, the same I, as having I a figure. S- I, I, I Given the amount of figures that they they showed to backers, some of those images of their uh, pallets uh, arriving mm. at the warehouse. I would really be surprised if they didn't just start showing up in game stores here soon. Just because of the amount, the sheer number of them that they got in was just impressive. Yeah. Yeah. So. They had, I've got a
1: good people. comic shop here in town that I might check in once in a while to see because they have an impressive selection of action figures.
0: Yeah, I would give it a shot because I, I would I would kind of imagine them to start showing up in game stores pretty soon. That would be awesome. Yeah, that <laughs> would be pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> and that
1: wraps up the Crier and we're going to move into our Cryptocurium Spotlight. And what they're doing for this one is... This year, there, we don't have the uh, Inner Sanctum like we have for the last couple of years. Jason's trying something different. There is now the Parcel of Terror, which is a subscription-based model, and every month you'll get a box of goodies.
0: Right. It's really cool. Um, this first one, uh, it looks like we're going to, it's called the Parcel of Terror, You end up with a Cthulhu wall wall plaque, uh, a gummy alien egg, which I have to admit is the very first time since early, early on with Cryptocurium that he's offered uh, candies again. Candy, yeah. Because that was his his claim to fame early on was that he made chocolate Cthulhu's and whatnot. So he's got a gummy alien egg, uh, a Slenderman print, which actually looks pretty good, Um, a Jason Voorhees magnet, which is fantastic. I want that magnet. Uh, I know, right? It's <laughs> awesome. A, an anatomical heart keychain, which I really want that keychain. really The heart looks fantastic. Mm-hmm. And then a uh, bloody skull pin, which looks really awesome as well. Yeah. So that's your uh, the first parcel of terror that he's sending out. Um, and I believe the deadline is January 30th, if you want to get in on this particular parcel of terror. Uh, And they're going to be thirty five dollars every month. So you get Mm thirty five bucks, and you get a big box full of goodies from Cryptocurium.
1: Yep, and so that's and being the one that I actually send out their email list, and so subscribe to the list because I'm trying to have some fun with my descriptions of things on there. The text for the middle of the month reminder i focused on the jason magnet and went into this thing of explaining how he's doing a public service by removing unfit child care providers from the <laughs> camp. <laughs> that's fine <funny. laughs> i like that yeah, yeah. good uh, this is just very very neat and i hope this uh subscription model works out really well. This is very much, there's other ones that do this kind of thing where it's a subscribe and you get a box every month of stuff.
2: stuff.
0: I do that as well. I, uh, I have one that I, I think it's called a geek box is what I do. And uh, every month you get a, uh, a box of random geek kitsch. Basically each month is a different theme. Uh, I think, you know, it, it just varies from company to company. There's a number of people that do this sort of thing. So Mm -hmm. it seems to be fairly popular right now, which is why he's trying to get out. So hopefully it works out.
1: This first month, it's actually showing everything that's in it, but it's going to be just kind of hints and clues of what's going to be in the future ones. Right. But I think the standard is that there will be some sort of a candy item in there and some sort of Lovecraftian thing in there and then something from like a slasher movie kind of character type thing. So those will be fairly reliably repeated in the months.
0: Very cool. Mm. Maybe we'll see a Freddy Krueger hand next time or something. Yeah. something. Yeah.
1: And I wanted to point out that there are still Predator magnets left. Really? These haven't sold out quite as quickly as the aliens did. And so there are still Predator magnet sets. And these are just amazing. I've got the alien ones.
0: And they're just gorgeous. Yeah, I didn't realize he still had predator magnets. I thought that they uh, had sold out. To be honest with you,
1: yeah, I was kind of surprised at that too. I was expecting them to be gone, but when I looked at the page, nope, it's still got availability.
2: So hmm. please, oh, please, tell, please, oh, sorry, please tell me he's done one where it's actually made of frosted glass or plastic, so that it's it's the predator <laughs> in stealth mode.
0: <laughs> oh, that would be fantastic, wouldn't it? <laughs> The clear clear resin or something. That would be wonderful. Oh yeah.
1: Yeah, he actually does have a cloaked version that's coated with a transparent translucent resin Oh, nice. and glowing green eyes.
0: Right. Oh perfect. Perfect. Yeah, they look really, really cool too. I, I'm really surprised these haven't sold out. So um I, I really like the, the uh the head and spine. Um is that the pen or the magnet? But I think I guess they're all magnets. They're all magnets. Yeah, so it's really the head and yeah, the head and spine trophy magnet is really quite cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's really pretty awesome. To, to, just the kind of
2: thing you want to put on the fridge to hold up your children's paintings from school. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it
0: matches perfect. You know.
2: <laughs> yep. And it will go well
1: with the uh, the alien magnet set. Oh, right. You know, so yeah, with, with chest burster kind of yeah, exactly crawling across the fridge.
0: Well, you gotta have it. You know.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, Cryptocurium, for your sponsorship.
0: Get paper and pencil, it's time for your second topic.
3: Okay,
1: and we're uh, going to have a full war-themed episode for our topics here. And for the side, I was thinking it would be kind of cool to have a discussion about having player characters with experience as soldiers as part of their backstory. For 20s and 30s, this naturally fits in with uh, the Great War. And, but almost any era, you can have characters being veterans
0: in one way or another. Yeah, without a doubt. And we've touched on, well, we haven't touched on this, but uh, the game system itself has touched on this. Because obviously the setting in general is, is set right after World War I. But a lot of people tend to kind of gloss over the, the skill sets that many um, fighting men garnered while in service.
2: Yeah, that, I mean that's changed a bit with with seventh edition. Uh, not so much in the core rulebook, but in the Investigator Handbook, uh, there's this whole uh, section of its experience packages now. So these are you know, things that your your character has been through, which has shaped him or her. Um, so you know some of those may be that they've worked in the medical profession or organised crime uh, or had a brush with the mythos. But one of them is that they've they've had military service. You know, in the classic era, particularly in the Great War. Um, and so, yeah, you know, this, this, you know, does shape the character in, in certain key ways. Uh, they, they get more points, uh, to spend on their skills. Um, but they also, um, they, they're also inured to certain kinds of sanity loss. So they don't take sand loss from seeing dead bodies or, or gore or stuff like that, because they've seen so much of it that they're hardened to it. On the other hand, you know, they, they might have some kind of PTSD or physical scars. Uh, so it all
0: bounces out a bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's similar to what um, Oscar had written in Islands of Ignorance. Uh, He had an article in there called Johnny Marching Home, uh, which gave you some mechanics uh, for sixth edition to play a military vet and had very similar lineup of things there overall, at least.
1: Yeah, I really liked the thing that Oscar put together in Islands of Ignorance where you've got skill packages that if they're an officer or just a soldier or a sailor. And it's like, Hey, okay, these are the kinds of things they would have likely learned while in service. Yeah, and there and was there disadvantages.
0: Was, right. And there was something similar way back when, when um, no man's land came out as well, where mm-hmm. it was kind of built in where you could build your character for no man's land. Uh, and then at the end, I want to say they had a little section on how you could continue to use that character Past no man's land in a normal uh, setting campaign, so you know in the in the late twenties as opposed to during the war itself, and that gave you some options for that as well, which were very similar. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and we're doing something vaguely similar. Um, there's a, a book that we've got coming out soon uh, from Cubicle 7 for World War Cthulhu, uh, which ties in with the Cthulhu uh, Britannica London box set uh, called World War Cthulhu London, which is all about playing on the home front during the Second World War in, in London itself. And there's certainly options in there for playing people who are involved with the military um, and you know who have certain skills, etc. that they've picked up, uh, which
0: also may help with their investigations or you know the aspects of civilian life. Very cool. I really want to do a uh, a mythosy version of Foil's War. I think that oh, would yes. be a lot of fun. You know, that would be that would be a blast. Yeah, right. definitely. Well, but yeah, I mean World well, War well, well, Cthulhu
2: London is the book for that then when it comes out. No, no not that it's the same setting, but it's the same era.
0: Yeah. Right, same era. Mm. That's what I'm looking for. Very cool. Yeah.
2: yeah, it's unfortunate that
1: John's voice was the way it is because, well, he's a veteran. Ah. Uh-huh. And uh, that would have been nice to have that kind of extra insight into, uh, you know, the type of training that you might go through for some of this. But, you know, so as somebody who only went through like three years of high school ROTC, <laughs> I'm kind of limited on Not quite. what I <laughs> bring to the table. Yeah. That just different. taught me that I really probably shouldn't join the military. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> i know what you mean um scott do you have any insight on how you can like currently how players can bring more of their uh war experience into uh the game itself
2: you mean well the the, the players themselves the war experience they've got all their
0: characters Right, the, the, the characters.
2: Well, I, I guess if you're looking at the classic hero, I mean, one film you could look to for inspiration, um, though you know, obviously it's a slightly darker side of things, is that, it, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember, it was a film called The Roaring Twenties, um, which uh, starring Humphrey Bogart, uh, which was... Uh, if I remember correctly, yeah, you know, it's a long time since I've seen it. Was about how a, a group of, of war veterans basically then used their skills to start, you know, creating a, a, an organized crime empire uh, in, the, in in the Roaring Twenties so i mean that's that's one aspect of it but obviously you know, you're talking about people who have developed you know a, a, not only developed a lot of skills but have seen a lot of things that you know ordinary people haven't seen in their lives who have been hardened to a lot of things um so you know in, in a lot of ways you know the, these people do make perfect investigators um they're you know they they're used to acting under pressure um they've uh, they're used to handling themselves in dangerous situations uh they've got um they they they've got the discipline to carry through with an investigation uh and yeah i i think all of these aspects should certainly shape how the characters perceive threats from the mythos uh how they engage with them um and you know how they're how they're motivated uh to actually do so
0: yeah that makes sense what about pulling in stuff like ptsd and shell shock at the time and um, things like that i mean do you how do you handle that where you have a guy who says okay i wanted to play a character who had shell shock in the war but he's still active as a as an investigator well, I mean, the, the good thing about Call of Cthulhu as a
2: system there is the fact that you've actually got the mechanics in place to do that anyway. So you can do that by giving them particular you know, phobias or, or mental illnesses, you know, uh, treating it perhaps even as a form of indefinite insanity. Uh, and then you know that, that, that will make them more um, susceptible to certain triggers. So you know, it, depending on what happened to the character, it could be that they're going to be absolutely fine in most investigative situations. Situations, but if there's any, you know, loud explosions, they start playing around with dynamite or something like that. That's going to trigger some fairly horrible flashbacks, in which case so you can use that. You can use the the existing insanity rules in Call of Cthulhu, the the delusions, etc., for, you know, putting them through a, a sort of bout of insanity as a result of that. Right.
1: Yeah. You just kind of work out as a player and keeper. I'm thinking for certain types of loud noises you'll just have it as an understanding of, well, those are going to trigger a sand roll.
0: Yeah. yeah. Or and just see
1: whether or not they react.
0: It doesn't also have to be just loud. It could be confined spaces, you know, mining well, yeah. them with trenches or something of that nature.
1: Yeah, to figure out together what triggers are going to be expected to uh, have this additional
0: roll. Also, um, some things that might be a little, well, I guess a little more, rare, I would say maybe it would be, uh, almost like a fog phobia, you know, maybe they got mm. caught in a gas attack or something of that nature. And so now they, mm. they have to roll a, a sand whenever they hit, you know, whenever the fog rolls in, in London or something, you know, it's thick as pea soup and they just, uh, go a little crazy thinking of mustard gas or something.
2: Or, or alternatively, I mean that could actually play into delusions if someone is already having an existing bout of uh, insanity uh, then then you could sort of you know, throw in something along the lines of you know is, is that chlorine gas you smell or something like that and you know, just right. just watch the character freak out. That's mm-hmm. a
0: good point. I like that. Yeah. It's,
1: there there are a lot of ways to make it into it rather than just being a couple of lines on the character sheet to make it a part of the personality of the character.
0: Yeah, and I think that in, and we've mentioned this before on this show that I, I think when people say that he was a war vet, we kind of just write that down, add a couple of skills that allows us to normally not have, and then kind of gloss over it. And I, I think we kind of miss the boat on that in typical uh, as players. Oh, yeah. Because it, yeah, it, I mean, it really opens up just a, a huge amount of possibilities for you as a, as a player character to
2: explore well, well i mean it's not just that but i mean if you think about the character in terms of a person i mean, this is going to be one of the defining things in their life yeah uh, exactly. yeah I mean, they, they, this they they've they've been through something you know intense traumatizing but that has probably you know shaped them in positive ways as well you know changed entirely who they are as a human being
0: right yeah many times you know you would end up with a guy who went in as a as a scrawny little nobody and comes out as a scrawny little psychopath you know what i mean (laughs) there's no way of knowing what what you'll end up as so i mean it it really is a, a defining moment in their lives so to kind of gloss over it with just a line or two on the character sheet is is just not doing it justice
2: well, yeah, I mean that's that's another aspect. I yeah, mean, you know, I, I I don't know how much this applies to you know real veterans in the period, but it's certainly something that comes out in the fiction, oh, yeah. uh, which is you know uh, people who you know have had that crucible of of war uh, have come out into civilian life and are are un, unable to cope with you know the kind of mundanity of it uh that you know it then pushes them into you know seeking danger being thrill seekers or at least you know the the sense of ennui with with you know the the kind of safety of everyday life and that again you know as as a kind of inspiration for an investigator character is fantastic
1: yeah yeah kind of explain why they're behaving the way they are yeah Yeah, they're
0: trying to get some of that adrenaline rush back from the war. Right. And it also makes it a lot easier to explain why in the world they would be mixed up in any mythosy thing in general, you know. Because, I mean, just normal people tend to avoid, you know, the mythos whenever they (laughs) encounter it. But these people might have more of a reason to uh, to kind of hit it and run, you know what I mean, Or, or run to it as opposed to away from it.
2: Yeah, it could be a sense of of duty, it could be a sense of heroism, or it could be, you know, something a bit more dark and self-destructive. Right.
0: Yeah, that's good ideas, though. I like that. Yeah.
3: Settle down
1: now, class. It's time for your next lesson. And now a topic submitted by an MU podcast sponsor. The general idea for this episode's topics have come from our eldritch emeritus, Todd. And he, as a sponsor topic, kind of had the idea that he wanted to do a a military-themed thing, because there have been a huge surge lately of military and war-based mythos gaming you know, we've got cubicle sevens world war cthulhu stuff we've got the Actune cthulhu lines uh let's say press says a soldiers of pen and ink for trail of cthulhu
0: yep we no have no
1: man's land yeah, no man's
0: land and shadows of war from chaos
1: yeah and so he was just kind of wanting to wanting us to touch on, in general, war gaming stuff, because it is one of those things that is kind of glossed over as just being a, a piece of character history that never comes up. So, we brought in somebody who's <laughs> very familiar with the idea of having a war set theme for uh, Mythos Gaming.
2: I, uh, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> <laughs> um... Well, yeah I, I saw the, uh, the the full email that Todd sent and he, he makes a very interesting point in there which I think is you know the the first uh, and possibly most important thing uh, about using war as a setting in call of Cthulhu or or in any game which is he talks about the fact that you know war represents a breakdown of social structures uh, is a complete break from the, the the normal kind of strictures of uh, a lot of you know particularly call of Cthulhu. Cthulhu gaming, but at the same time, adding a whole load of additional strictures in because you know, you're in a dangerous situation, there's a chain of command, etc. And yeah, I, I I think that that's what one of the things that makes for war is a fascinating background for Call of Cthulhu.
1: Yeah, it, it gives such a nice, easy toehold for something very sinister to get into a society and,
0: um, and get rooted. Not only that, but something else that I just realized is that a lot of times we tend to gloss over the demography you know the demographics of the home front uh especially england uh during the time of the great war where virtually every able-bodied man was gone you know and so you're left with an entire country of the elderly women and children and that's it there was virtually no men and so that that kind of gets left and and it's something to really think about whenever you're uh Running a a game in that time period during the Great War in the, you know, in the home front and whatever, whatever country you might be in, because it was virtually the same in all of Europe. You know, everyone's on the front and not many are anywhere else. Yeah. And, uh, you know, obviously, you know,
2: where you're dealing with just the the normal menaces that you see in a a Call of Cthulhu game. uh, So, you know, a a group of civilians on the home front dealing with, I mean, let's let's just say a ghoul infestation or something like that. Then, yeah, they're suddenly going to become potentially a lot more vulnerable.
1: I like the idea of having a just a short scenario set during the war that the characters all have to be women or like disabled or older
0: men or children yeah or yeah. or you could have the uh those those uh those few men who who refused to serve and were uh, virtually hated and and uh, hunted down by everyone in their community oh, yes. at the time um you know that's another option you know if you did not go to the war you were pretty much vilified wherever you lived for obvious reasons i mean you know
3: mm-hmm. why
0: should they be out of it while everyone else is dying especially in england i think that's might have been where it was worse than anywhere else yeah well, i mean that, that
2: that actually opens up some interesting possibilities which is you know if you've got these these vilified outsiders in society yeah um these people who are having to avoid their own communities um those sound like the perfect potential recruits for cults
0: right exactly yeah. Well, yeah, we, I, we all know there's a very thin line between cultists and investigators anyway, so. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> and, <laughs> could swing either way there. But, yeah, I like that idea of, of being able to – it just – Possibly even opens up the background info for it, you know, to say, well, why did he turn bad? Well, because he was completely vilified for no real good reason other than the fact that he didn't go to the war for whatever reason.
2: Yeah, I mean, Mm you know, even a dysfunctional community like a cult is still a community. And if you're cut out from your own, yeah, Mm -hmm. you you go with whoever accepts you.
1: Yeah, I like that a lot. The idea of even just the idea of flushing out who would normally be your antagonist is kind of an unusual idea that it's wonderful.
2: Yeah. You don't see
1: that out very often.
2: And the, the, the other thing along those lines that occurs to me is where you've got these, you know, strange little communities like Innsmouth uh, or, uh, you know, any, any, anywhere where the people may be something other than human uh, or where there's some kind of, you know, strange mythos related degeneration. There may be a lot of these people who, you know, are then considered unfit or unsuitable for the military because of the, you know, the deformities and the strangeness that that brings. So you, you could end up in the opposition where these these isolated communities that are are shunned by their their neighbors where you know they're persecuted etc suddenly get a chance to rise to prominence because all the people who'd normally keep them in check aren't there anymore yeah yeah it's a very good point
1: yeah they're they're kind of allowed to kind of have free reign on whatever they want to do
0: yeah and then considering that the neighboring towns and whatnot that they're plaguing is is filled with the elderly and and children and women at this time period at least there's you know it would be a good a good spot for maybe some uh, empowerment of women things to step up, and um, for this time yeah, frame, definitely. that's a very rare thing. But that would uh, that would allow for some very interesting games as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, certainly I've been researching a lot of stuff, uh, you know, the Second World War home front and um I that that, that was a real watershed in terms of uh, the role of women in society. I, not just that, but you know, it it broke down a lot of barriers in terms of class and race and so on, but uh, particularly, you know, when it came to uh, you know, the, uh, women being in stronger, more responsible positions, even military positions. I you know, uh, yeah, <laughs> go, go, going back to my my particular area of interest. You know, the the special operations executive in the Second World War, I I think, if I remember correctly, something like a quarter to a third of the agents that they had were women. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, uh-huh. because they, they, you know, they, they, you know, the, the SOE realized that, you know, women were, you know, at least as effective, uh, as men in a lot of undercover situations, uh, they had other abilities that they could bring into play and they made very, very good field agents.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, well, they could so, get a lot of places that men were just not able to get. That's you know, right. Where, where,
1: yeah or they were just ignored right. overlooked underestimated exactly, exactly.
0: Yeah, that was a very good point now let's move from the home front then to um i guess an actual front line itself uh, and we'll use the great war i suppose as our our um our setting of choice for this just because that would tend to be what most people are going to put it under, except, well, except for, well, War, well, I don't know. Yeah. Except for all the, all products, the products that are, are now hitting World the shelves. <laughs> That's a good point, yeah. So yeah. let's do World War II then because that would be, oh. that would be in line with what everything else is uh, coming out for. So Ark's and World War Cthulhu, so.
2: Sure. Um, well, so, you know, just to get a quick plug in there, though, because yeah, I, I, I'd be irresponsible not to do that. We we are going to be bringing out yeah. a World War One core book some point in the next year, I believe. So, uh, yeah, if 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 you want that's to fine. if you want to extend uh, the World War Cthulhu stuff to the First World War, yes, we're, we're providing the support for that soon.
0: Oh, that's awesome! I'm gonna have to grab that then. I really like the Great War, and I, I'm really excited to hear that you're going to come out with a product for uh, World War One. That'll be f-
2: fantastic. Oh, we- we're we're extending World War Cthulhu all over the place at the moment. Um, we we put out some announcements at Dragon Meet, uh, so uh, we're also going to be uh, doing a Cold War book soon. Oh wow, that'll be fun. Yeah,
1: that's yeah, that's going to be fascinating. I'm
0: I'm really looking
2: forward to getting involved in that. Yeah, that
0: should be a lot of fun. Oh, so let's yes. get back to let's go to the front in uh, World War Two. Then, um, yes, how can how can players bring the mythos to the front without? Destroying uh, or creating a complete alternate history to make the keeper's job even more horrifying. Um, I mean, is there easy ways to do this uh, without just completely blowing history apart and having, you know, to rewrite history as a keeper? I, well, I think so.
2: I, I, I don't see that there necessarily has to be any difference in this respect between um, an ordinary Call of Cthulhu game and a war-based one uh, because, you know, that, that that thing about changing history uh, is always a risk in any standard Call of Cthulhu game. Uh, you know, if you're in a big city and, um, and one of the players decides to solve the problem there by calling Cthulhu, well, history just changed. Uh, and And I think it's you know, that's going to be the same in the war. but um, you know it, it, the rest of it just comes down to tone. um you know if if you're playing a fairly purist game where you know it's going to be like a normal call of Cthulhu adventure or at least with a, you know the same kind of threats, but against the backdrop of war, then that doesn't have to change history. Uh, It's only really when you start getting into the more pulpy stuff with you know uh, Nazi sorcerers um, controlling armies of the undead and making alliances with deep ones and all you know elder gods and so on, then you know that 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 starts getting into alternate history stuff. But you know if you keep it rooted in in the real history of the war and it's just sort of yes you you you're you're in this you know horrible combat situation and coincidentally there's this mythos stuff going on at the side that is you know just as much a danger to every human party involved in the war, then that's, yeah. You know, I, I think that's much more grounded.
0: Yeah, and that makes it a lot easier on yeah. people running it as well, so you don't have to try and think of all the possibilities that might come about if, you know, Cthulhu did happen to rise uh, three weeks prior at wherever, you know, you don't have to worry about how to work that in and deal with that. Mm, definitely. But yes,
2: yeah, you know, I, I think the big part of this is deciding as a group, deciding as a keeper, you know, whether you are going to try to, you know, play a game, you know, like a normal Call of Cthulhu game that stays within the strictures of history or whether you are happy just going off-piece like that. Uh I mean, you know, if you are, there's there's nothing wrong with that, but uh, you know, you, I I think you have to be prepared for it being that kind of alternate history game.
1: Yeah. Yeah, the 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 more integrated you try and make the mundane real world uh threats if you integrate that with the mythos stuff the more you do that the more off-center the the stronger the pulp it's going to wind up being that kind of thing is going to happen yeah. you know that's where you get Baktoon's line which right. is fun i love pulp where they had minis of deep ones wearing you know, ripped up Nazi uniforms and stuff. Right. It's, that's hilarious and fun. <laughs> but it's definitely alternate history and much more of a, you know, just smiley, fun, let's just mow them down with Tommy guns.
2: Absolutely. The, I, I guess the only thing, I mean, particularly when it comes to the the Second World War and, you know, the Nazis and so on, is... I think there's a very fine line to be walked there. I mean, the the Nazis were into all sorts of weird stuff, you know, um, in terms of the occult and so on, but I think that actually influenced what they did a lot less than, you know, some people uh, would think. Um, But what, you know, certainly, you know, in the games that I'm involved in, what I'm very cautious of is the fact that, By introducing mythos elements, particularly into the Nazi side of things, that it it almost provides um, an excuse for some very, very human evils uh, of the 20th century. And, you know, personally, you know, I I, I find that a bit uncomfortable if it goes too far in that direction. You know, I I, I don't, you know, I I, I want
0: to. Almost as if you're being apologetic towards the Nazis by giving them this mythos out as to why they acted the way they acted.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They they only did all those horrible things because Niala Fatet the made them do it. Yeah. It's it's right. not, yeah, it's yeah, that that's that's an awkward place to go to. And I don't th- yeah, I don't think too many games, you know, make that mistake. But yeah, you know, personally, you know, if I were involved in a game that were heading that direction, I'd I'd
0: find it very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, th- th- it brings up another another good point as to where um you know you have in a more realistic setting, you know you have the normal conflict between the allies and the axis powers uh and they're still being as horribly atrocious as they really were anyway, but then you can have this third you know party of mythos just completely indifferent. For instance, w- what comes to mind is um color out of space, you know where um in in particularly the movie um de farba right oh yes Uh, where it's set in germany and that brings back you know he's a german soldier returning home and you know and then the issues hit with the the farmland and what but you could also have the whole issue surrounded or just prior to him returning home in that same setting where you know the battle is raging and and all the stuff's going on, and then there's the color that comes out of the well in order to try and protect itself because now it's got all these this wonderful fodder around that it can play with, so I mean it, it you don't have to have the mythos tied to one side or the other. It, it can be completely tertiary in this in that sense
1: yeah. And I would think that would be more of the norm. I would think so. Yeah. That it would be completely indifferent to whatever you know pointless political sides the humans are doing. Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, there may
2: still be scope for you know certain people involved in you know any any faction uh, to you know, have uncovered the mythos and be heading in a cultist direction and so on. But you know that 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 is still. Um, somewhat orthogonal to the actual conflict I and mean, that that 's you know the same way as you 'd get a, a cultist coming up in an ordinary call of Cthulhu game. the fact that they 're a member of the military or, uh, you know, or or the secret police or something like that uh, doesn 't shape the overall policy of the war
3: yeah
0: uh, another 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 thing to think about would be the issue of um, for instance like the um, reported I guess World War one uh, Christmas Day truce uh, football match or soccer match um, between the Germans and the British forces where they mm. kind of were kind of sick of the trench life there and they wanted a break and they kind of went against uh, both sides uh, ruling parties there and, and, and had a, a little and football played football and in no man's land, yeah. Played football in no man's land. Well, whether or not that actually happened, people have brought up, you know, whether it could have happened or not. But but it brings up the idea of having both sides uh, temporarily put aside their differences in order to fight something that's wholly um, evil. In other words, another mythos threat. Um, so that that brings in another option where you can have players from both sides. And then you'll have that that conflict in the group, which is sometimes fun to have, you know, where you have some, some German players, you have some British players, but then you're both having, you're forcing them into a situation into which they have to fight some other, you know, foreign mythos threat that's, you know, both of them are, are rooted in that they have to fight this in order to survive.
2: Yeah, and and that actually leads to you know, a, a further problem, which is you know assuming that you know a lot of them survive and assuming they defeat the present you know the, the, the mythos presence, what
0: happens at the end of that scenario? Oh well, the, the easy answer is that they go back to their own sides and they end up killing each other in the moment's land. I mean, that's, yeah, that's what I mean. That's what happens. That's that's the that's a one shot for you. You know what I mean? Yeah, because you, you're not able to bring that past anything further than that. No, I absolutely not. But I No, I was thinking in terms of, yeah, potentially that
2: final scene where, you know, they're they're standing around with the bodies of all these dead ghouls or whatever. Oh, I, yeah, all of them with you, the guns oh, out. Well, the is, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's sort of, <laughs> Oh what what do nah. we do now? <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, I don't know, maybe it's up to the players. Hopefully they would uh yeah. they would go back to their respective sides and uh kill each other another day, but they might just have it out right there knowing players. Yeah. It's yes kind of yeah. hard to say. No, no, I, I,
2: I can see that being a tense, tensed game.
0: Yeah. I tend to like that, though, where you have that sort of uh, intergroup conflict as well as, um, or at least having some part of the group. Um, uh, it might work out better as opposed to having both sides being definitively one side or the other to have maybe one side be British and then the a couple of players be which they think would be French resistance fighters, but instead they're actually working for uh, the Germans possibly so that they can't tell, but they're civilians, right? So they're not in uniform and, and they're just telling them that they're um, French resistance, where in fact they're working for the Germans. Um, that might work out a little bit better because it gives the option of, of easily walking away without having to worry about it. Of course, it also gives the option of the uh, resistance fighters shooting them. British soldiers in the back, but you know that's all. I guess that's always an option when you're playing something that of that nature. Yeah,
2: and I, I think that you know as well. One one other cool thing, um, or one other very useful thing about um, setting a, a game in in the board like this is that um, it provides. Potentially, a, a sort of mission structure and a reason for cohesion that is sometimes missing from normal Call of Cthulhu. Your character's yeah. got a reason to work I- together. They've got particular threats which they've got to neutralise that they know about. You know, I- in the case of you know certainly a game like uh, World War Cthulhu or any other game where you know I- as soldiers you're actively being sent against a mythos threat. You, you've got a, a a briefing. You've got a particular goal related to the Mythos that you've got to achieve as well, uh, but you've got agency in how you do it. Uh, so, yeah, you know, I, I think you know c- certainly not so much these days, but in a lot of Call of Cthulhu games that I ran, you know, donkeys years ago, that I sometimes floundered with, uh, you know, the, the, the reasons for all these characters working together, why they then pick up and and you know, work against a new threat and so on, and it was sometimes very artificial. Uh, but, but yeah, you know, uh, I think the, the sort of military setting for it actually cuts through all that so nicely.
1: Yeah.
0: Also, a, a thing to realize there is that, you know, when you have a squad-based um, group, you know, you have definable roles. Yes. Um, which makes it easier. So you have, you know, a machine gunner, and he's the guy with the heavy machinery. You might have a demolitions expert. You have a guy whose main task is first aid. You know what I mean? So he has a really good first aid. Um, you've got a definable leader, you know, this is the group leader, you know what I mean? And so you have these guys who have very definitive skill sets within the group, as opposed to a complete, you know, random mix of stuff that you've been thrown together. Another aspect of the same thing you were mentioning there, Scott, is that as opposed to just having the agency, you have resources, which are not available to normal players outside the time of war, Yes, uh, where you can request items that are wholly unallowed (laughs) or (laughs) disallowed in a normal call cthulhu game you know um
2: wandering around with a backpack full of plastic explosives yeah yeah.
0: or or the ability to at least call in an artillery or an airstrike you know i mean that's that changes things quite significantly Um, when you can call on the radio and and able to pull in an artillery strike to a certain area but i mean that all all told though i mean all that comes back to that it's completely unable to do that without being part of some very, very large, well-funded groups, you know, that has the ability to train and uh, provide resources and provide instruction and direction uh, towards a certain target. And then you're not going to get that outside of a war setting, or at least outside of a military setting, um, or possibly even um, not just military, but also, uh, for instance, the Secret Service or SOE or something of that nature. Yes.
2: Yeah, and and even if the group isn't uh, focused on trying to deal with mythos threats, maybe if you know if this is just a uh, a squad of soldiers who've never even encountered any uh, the, the mythos before, and this is their first brush with it, the fact that you've still got that cohesion, you've still got those roles, you've still got that re- those resources, again makes them you know a near ideal investigator group.
0: Right. It, it's really hard to to go against that as a, it, a you, it's really hard to find a better group. To throw together against the mythos threat than just a, a random band of soldiers you know what i mean because they're already yeah. battle hardened typically even if they're not they're well trained enough to get there pretty quick um and then they have the the firepower and the the know-how and the resources in order to make some serious dents in a mythos problem
2: but on the flip side, they've also got to deal with a lot of problems that ordinary investigator groups wouldn't have to deal with, you know, like the fact that they're in the middle of a war. Yeah, I mean, that's, right. a, that's a pretty big one. Um, but you know th- th- there's a lot of resources that it, you know investigator groups might uh, take for granted, uh, you know li- like you know being able to get food easily uh, that right. you know, a-, a group of soldiers behind enemy lines wouldn't. um you know they they might be trying to dodge enemy forces, they might be trying to dodge the secret police uh, counterintelligence um and you know that th- that could be just as much of a danger, if not more of a danger to them, than anything the mythos could throw at them.
0: Also, you could go completely internal, you know, that their their troubles could be, you know, internally based to the group that they belong to. So they could they could have a, an actual CO or or a um, officers who just have no idea what's going on uh, which was yeah. good, and then wants them to do one thing when everyone knows that they should be doing another and they can't, you know, they'd have no option but to do it the way that they want it done yeah in the first
2: world War, that could have fairly serious consequences because right. you know if, if you do have that c o who's telling you you know, that, that you know the, this is your mission, this is what you're supposed to do, you realize there's a mythos threat you've got to you've got to deal with uh do you risk potentially you know becoming a deserter and facing a firing squad in order to do the right thing?
0: yeah because they're notoriously not going to give you much leeway there. No. Now if you if you if you tend to uh, desert your post while you should be doing something else. I mean, even if you did something good, you're still going to be tried as a deserter and, and put up for a court martial. Yeah. Which, you know, in the Great War had you know fairly horrific consequences. Yeah. Typically, you were shot on yeah. spot. <laughs> so, exactly. Um, there wasn't much uh, leeway given. And if you were unlucky enough to be a Russian in the Second World War, then, you know, you were shot anyway. It didn't seem, yes. That was their that was their favorite modus operandi of of uh, inspiring the troops and whatnot. Uh, <laughs> you know, they had the well, commissar there to uh, to make sure anyone who turned around would get shot and uh, moving forward. You know what I mean? So
2: I, I mean, as far as motivators go, not getting shot is a pretty powerful one.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a of course. It's. It's the lesser of two evils. Do you want to be shot uh, running towards your own side, or do you want to get shot running away from your own side? (laughs) So, not there's not a whole lot of difference there in some cases. No,
1: I had just recently re-listened to your latest episode of uh, Good Friends of Jackson Elias, where you went over all the details for uh, World War Cthulhu, and I was completely unfamiliar with SOE previously, Ah. but it almost sounds like it was made. For oh yes, yeah. That is just amazing. As you're going into this, I'm like, wow. That yeah, <laughs> I have to admit, I, the
0: Brits were just fantastic. This was yeah, real. they were fantastic in coming up with some great uh, stuff during the First World War, especially, and during the Second World War, especially. Their their uh, intelligence units were, were, were spot on crazy, and uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, some really interesting stuff out of them.
2: Well, I, I, I think the British have always, you know, had this, this veneer of being, you know, very polite and very proper. But underneath, you know, once you scratch the surface, then, you know, I, 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 I love the fact that, you know, the, the, the nickname of SOE was the Ministry of of, of Ungentlemanly Warfare. Right. But, <laughs> you know, it, it's the idea of, oh, fantastic, you know, this is where we get to take the gloves off. This is where we get to indulge, you know, all our, you know, more mischievous and murder aspects uh, and, um, you know, come up with some really quite horrifying stuff sometimes.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. You can almost see, a, a, you know, a, um, a lord uh, sitting around his uh, tea set, uh, sipping his tea with his finger out and uh, contemplating how they should uh, try out the new torture techniques. You <laughs> know, uh, it's, it's, it's quite surreal in some cases when you think of the people involved and then the things that they were able to accomplish and come up with.
2: Well, uh, and also you know sort of the the, the veneer of uh, you know as i said respectability and properness that that disguises all that and there's um I, I, it's, it's probably a story you've heard there's a, there's a story i read online a while back um, I, Christopher Lee uh, was involved in special operations during the Second World War um, and uh, apparently the, 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 during the filming of uh, the Lord of the Rings films there was some discussion between him and Peter Jackson um, about uh, you know, how quickly someone would be silenced if they were stabbed in the back and you know, uh, Peter Jackson was giving Christopher Lee some direction about this and he said "Yeah." he basically said look yeah i don't have to imagine this i've done this (laughs) uh yeah the the, the proper techniques for silencing someone by getting up behind them stabbing the back and collapsing their lungs before they can scream
0: you gotta love chris really uh i didn't know he yeah chris really listen chris really is a badass I'm just going to say it now. The guy he is amazing. Is. Yep. Um, I, ha- I have to admit, my favorite, there's an outtake from filming the, f- uh, I think the first, uh, the first uh, Fellowship of the Ring, right? Where Christopher Lee is in full garb as Saruman and he's trying to walk up the stairs in his, in his, I can't, think like a name. My God, it just went blank. Uh, in the Black Tower, whatever the hell the thing was called. I can't. Orthon. Whenever he's trying to walk up the little stairs, and he keeps tripping over his robe and the stairs, and finally he just kind of gives up and throws his hands out and goes, "I just, I just can't walk up these stairs." <laughs> <laughs> it's great. <laughs> I mean, he just completely loses it and kind of walks off. But I mean, it's it's fantastic. No, Christopher really Lee is a complete and utter badass in my terms. Uh, oh, I really he's enjoy he's, him. Yeah,
2: he's one of my heroes.
0: So,
1: so he was actually S.O.E. or. Uh, Slightly I, I different.
0: don't know. I, uh, I'm he pretty sure he was SOE, actually.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, he hasn't confirmed that. He's never confirmed. That. I mean, uh, he was involved with you know some kind of commando activities during the war, but I don't think he's ever been open about who precisely he worked for.
1: Okay. Because I'm thinking, okay, we totally need to have a write up of him as an NPC. <laughs> oh, so
2: so that next time I play World War Cthulhu, I want to play him as a player character, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. I just <laughs> Christopher Lee is somebody in your squad. <laughs> there's
0: there's a quote I just found where it says um, this is Christopher Lee speaking. He says, I was attached to the SES from time to time, but we are forbidden former, present or future to discuss any specific operations. Let's just say I was in special forces and leave it at that. People who read into the into that what they like. And that's yes. his quote about what he did during uh, War Two.
1: Okay, so it'll never come out what he did. Probably but not.
0: Knowing the knowing the British it and their was, secrets, uh, uh, I I really really doubt it. Oh yeah, something. I mean the the,
2: this, uh, the secretiveness that you know, surrounded SOE in particular at the time. I, you know, people didn't know SOE existed until after the war, um, and it, it was the the, the 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 secrecy was so extreme that um, quite often people would be you know considerably into their training uh, after having joined SOE before they even realised what they were being trained for or what they joined. I, I, I read I read an example a little while back of um, there was a woman who'd uh, been recruited as a potential agent, I think, to go behind the enemy lines in France, uh, who had gone through the initial training, uh, you know, in small arms, fire, Morse code, map reading, etc., had made it up to the training of the Scottish Highlands in Arisag and um, was... Uh, um, you know, learning how to you know, plant explosives and, and blow up trains and stuff like that. And after a few weeks of this, turns around to the trainer and, and says, I, I thought I was being trained for a secretarial role. What's going on? <laughs> That's
0: great. Uh, there is a mention we want our secretaries to be <laughs> formidable. Well, you are a secretary, shorthand will be part of this. Don't worry about it. We just want to make sure that you have sufficient demolitions <laughs> knowledge, <laughs> <laughs> yes. um another another go ahead
2: no 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 sorry it's carry carry on
0: no i was just going to say there's another christopher lee himself mentioned that he was attached uh during the war to soe and to the um, the long-range desert patrol um which was the eventual precursor to the sas in general all right yes but he never um he's never gone into any particular details as to what he actually did but he was he is known to be an intelligence officer uh, attached to the RAF during the war so outside of that you know who knows because SOE didn't you weren't uh, necessarily like Scott's example there of, of you know I thought it was a secretary you would be a normal officer during during wartime and then occasionally they would task you with a certain thing to do and you weren't constantly doing SOE missions
2: yeah, I mean, it, it varies depending on the agent. I, you know so, so, Some of them, particularly the ones who were working behind enemy lines, who had long-term uh, roles in you know, building up networks and dealing with local resistance and so on, you know, they're, 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 that might well have been a full-time thing for them.
0: Right, that's a good point.
2: Uh, and, yeah. and, and also, I mean, there were people who worked on, um, you know, in, in the UK, uh, who would work on things like uh, propaganda and... Um, and yeah, you know, that that that's all. I mean, that that started out as part of the um, as part of MI6, but then got uh, absorbed into SOE later on in the war. Um, so yeah, uh, they, they, it, it, it was it was a, a strange at times, you know, almost nebulous organisation that brought in a lot of weird things. I, you know it's the, the the inspiration uh, you know that, that Ian Fleming had for uh, the Q workshop and the James Bond films uh, came out of um, you know one of the sections of SOE that uh, it, it run by a chap called George Ream uh, who you know, was the inspiration for Q. Uh, who he, his speciality was finding ways of sabotaging things, but he used to he invented all sorts of strange devices. Um, at the same time, you know he. Would um his background in engineering uh meant that you know he he'd instruct agents how with you know nothing more than a sledgehammer you know they could walk into an industrial plant and just disable everything in minutes um so it, it was yeah it was wow. um kind of a real mix of skills and people.
1: Which is just amazing to think of having these as player characters for a game. It's just it. It's almost like having a I don't know. You're like playing agents of Shield. It's just. Um, crazy! It, oh, the levels of of skill, well, no, and, and not just and, that,
2: but the things that they did. I yeah, you know, um, there, there there are certain you know stories I've read about you know the activities of SOE agents where you know if you put them in fiction, people would just think it was too unrealistic. Oh gosh, there was one of the saboteurs in Norway. I, I, I think it was one of the, the the agents who was responsible for disabling the the German heavy water plant there um uh who you know w- was, was uh, operation it, archery it, is what that
0: was yes
2: yeah and, and and was injured in the process uh and you know it, 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 in the process of trying to escape uh you know he he was cross-country skiing to try to escape uh the scene and make it to a safe house on a broken leg for something like two days
0: right i mean just uh, insane amounts of of just balls involved with many of these guys. Yeah. Wow. Also, there was the yeah. uh, what was the name of the um, basically it was like a ferrying service from oh oh man what is it called
2: yes um, yeah yeah the the the, the, the one from Norway
0: across. yeah to to, to, um, to Sco- yeah to Scotland um, yeah to the uh, to the islands north of Scotland yeah. um, but there was a, the big you know oh. there was a, they would bring saboteurs and agents into Norway. Uh, because it was you know Nazi occupied, and they would they would transport those across the North Sea into Norway, and then drop them off, and come back, and bring supplies and whatnot, and evacuate people out through that method as well. Yeah, uh,
2: I, 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 hang on. I, I I can find this. Paul, Paul Fricker used it as uh, part of his um, uh, part of his scenario for Europe ablaze. Um, oh,
0: cool! Oh, the Shetland bus service was it? That's or? it. The Shetland bus service. That's what it was. Yeah, that was it. Yeah. But yeah, that's another fantastic story where they, SOE actually tasked um, locals. Um, they had their own, you know, the, the Navy itself was was already occupied. But then on top of that, the Navy guys that they sent were not skilled enough uh, to traverse the North Sea coming out of Shetland because it's, it's fairly precarious waters. Oh, yeah. Uh, especially up that far north of, in the North Sea, it, it, it gets really dangerous. So they would... Uh, bring in local fishermen. They would find the best local fishermen around, and you know, task them with this. And that's what they did. They worked for SOE as as running this "quote unquote" bus service um, from the Shetland Islands back over to Norway during the Second. Yes, yeah. and they used it to smuggle in agents and equipment, yep. and uh, yeah, yeah, it
2: was quite spectacular. I mean, we've talked a bit about the the tone of the game. I suppose, you know, one one possibility could be talking about using the horrors of war as a way of accentuating the horrors of, of playing Call of Cthulhu. Yeah,
1: um, it, It's almost like a magnification of the levels of trauma that someone would go through because there is all the mundane levels exactly. of horror on top of then you're dealing with mythos stuff on top of this already almost unbearable situation.
0: Let's go into game mechanics involving that then first, like um uh, let's touch on it, and then let's talk about how you know how you handle sand loss in relation to uh, mundane horrors, and then also uh, mythos horrors stacked on top of that because that's gonna get a little that can be a little precarious at times if you really think about it too long. Michelle, okay. What if we have a group of players that are already going through? uh, the normal horrors of war, you know, the regular stuff that, that any soldier would go into. And then, uh, and then they're s- confronted with a mythos threat. How would, how would you relate sand loss from, you know, the mundane horrors as opposed, and then stacking on mythos horrors? Cause if you, you know, if you think about it too long, it, sometimes you want to say, well, they're already a nude to, To some amount of gore and violence and and stuff like that. So that's not going to affect them as much. But at the same time, I mean, these are completely otherworldly things that they're going to witness. And so that's going to affect them. But how much extra would that affect them? Would it affect them a little more? Would it affect them less? Does it change? You know, would the sand rating uh, losses for witnessing deep ones after you just exited, you know, uh, Argonne be the same as if it was? you know, just a random individual witnessing a deep one. You know, you see what I'm saying?
2: Yeah, I, well, I think the mechanics of the game will... Cope with some of the vagaries of that you know automatically, because obviously you know different people are going to be affected by sand losses in different ways, depending on whether they've made the sand rolls, depending on you know whether they're temporarily or indefinitely insane. Um, you know, certainly under the seventh edition rules, if the character is indefinitely insane as a result of the horrors of war that they've already seen anyway, then you know, any mythos entities they encounter you know are, are almost certainly going to trigger additional bouts of madness, send them spiralling into illusion, strange activities, uh, etc., uh, which you know, has got the snowballing effect of horror. I, I, as far as the mundane. So, so well, yeah you know, i say mundane it's 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 a pretty horrible word to use in this context yeah, as far as 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 far as the, yeah. the, the 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 you know human aspects of the horrors of war are concerned yeah you know, I, I i think yeah a character's probably would become inured to that slightly over time in the same way that you've got the getting used to the awfulness thing in in the mythos uh sorry mythos side of things in the the the, the rule book so you know perhaps you 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 start losing a bit less sanity because of seeing dismembered bodies or you know watching your friends getting blown
0: up would that would that scale be ramped up though i mean because or is it is there like i can't recall in the in the in the core rule book if if there's an actual mechanic that states okay after you've witnessed Um, your 10th dead body, you no longer take a sand loss from witnessing dead bodies. You know what I mean? But is that, is that ramped up or is it just the fact that they're seeing so many of it so fast that that same number is hit much quicker?
2: Yeah, I, I I don't think it's explicitly stated in there, but you do have that mechanic for the fact that you know you're, you're capped in how much sand you can lose for perhaps seeing a particular mythos entity. So if you encounter you know lots and lots of deep ones over the course of you know, a scenario or a campaign, the amount of sanity you lose from them will get capped and 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 you know change a bit over time. And I I think where you've got a situation like um, you know a, a battlefield where you're you are in encountering death and dismemberment on a regular basis then you'd probably want to apply the same mechanic
0: there would you in game terms then would you let's say you've just finished a, a battle would you would you if the battle is 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 or is not a part of the game you're actually like a mundane battle uh, a part of the game or not a part of the game maybe it happened just prior to the game would you roll all of that as one giant sand roll loss? Uh, to be applied at the end, or would you do it piece by piece if it's, you know, happening in-game? Personally, if it's happening in-game, I'd do it piece by piece at the
2: time. Uh, because you know if if people are going to have uh, bouts of insanity you know I, I think it's more interesting that that happens during the course of you know a military mission uh, and you know again you know in, in seventh edition you've got uh the idea that you know during these bouts of insanity your character will behave in certain strange ways but still potentially under the player's control that they may you know suddenly become overconfident or they may be you know somewhat shell shocked um or they just may be in complete denial about what's going on around them and i, I think that, that that could be an interesting thing for uh, a player to seize on uh, actually in playing that battle
0: that's a good point point. and then once you once you've gone through yeah. those horrors of war you know i mean if you are in a battle with deep ones would it be the the actual sight of the deep ones or the way that they're ripping apart the humans involved that would incur the additional sand or is it both or i mean well because it, it, I, mean, in that-
2: it, I i think so, it depends because you know if if you've become again inured to death and gore through you know um through battles and you know encountering a corpse of someone ripped apart by deep ones or maybe even seeing someone being killed by deep ones maybe wouldn't affect you in the same way that someone who'd never seen a dead body uh, would be affected Right. But I, I, I don't see, because, you know, the mythos is something that exists outside, you know, human reality and human experience. It's something alien. It's something that is an insult to the human mind. Uh, I, I, I think that, you know, no matter you know what horrors of war you've witnessed, encountering a deep one or any other mythos entity is going to shock you just as much as it would, you know, some, someone who's, you know, never seen anything more horrific than a paper cut.
0: Right. Good point. So also thinking about sand loss, what about having, um, is it possible to have your training override your sand? You know what I mean? So like these are highly trained individuals. If they witness a, um, you know, something that causes them them to get a temporary or indefinite insanity, is it possible that they can belay that insanity due to their training, for instance, um, as opposed to. Immediately going into shock, you know, or immediately going into a fugue state or catatonia or running scared and screaming that they finish fighting first. And then once it's over, then they pass out or then they they have the effects of that uh, sand loss uh, as opposed to Mm. to just having it happen immediately. Because, I mean, these are these are soldiers in some cases, they're they're extremely trained to deal with the fact that they're going to see some horrible, god awful stuff. You know, and so I mean, is it possible that you could have a character um, fight through that actual sand loss to complete the the mission at hand? Well, maybe not even the mission, but maybe the firefight that he's involved in potentially. Uh, and then once that's over, then it all creeps back and hits him like a ton of brick, and he's done. You know what I mean? Well-
2: yeah, they, they, there's a mechanic that's a bit like that already in in World War Cthulhu, um, but it's it's more um, associated with the the characters in there uh, who've already had brushes with Mythos, and you know as part of their their training, you know they, they've they've learned they have learned how to suppress that a bit. So yeah, I'm just trying to remember. I think it's once per session, you do get the chance to mitigate or suppress a hand loss. Um, so it, it is a bit along those lines, um, but. I, that, that that that's only part of it. I mean, based on what you've just said, uh, the way I'd be inclined to deal with that, uh, is that um Certainly when someone goes temporarily or indefinitely insane and they have a bout of insanity, uh, you as the keeper, and you can negotiate with the player, have got a bit of uh, free reign in how you interpret that. Uh, So one possibility may be that you you, you go through the options or come up with a new one as to how they react under that situation that... um, that that, that you know, maybe it is you know that that thing whereby they throw caution to the wind and decide to do something you know incredibly heroic and uh, possibly self-destructive. Um, it, it, it may be that they do you know enter some kind of fugue state and do you know all sorts of things and don't actually remember until afterwards or until presented with the evidence of it. But uh, yeah, I, I think you have you've, you've got the the option there uh to have the effects of, of of insanity kick in and not actually take the character
0: out of the battle right maybe like a luck roll or something that would whether or not his training kind of kicks in to override that that uh sanity you know loss that insanity that happens
2: yeah and i i'd say you know possibly either a power roll or a sand roll might be more appropriate oh, there that might be more appropriate you're right um but yeah yeah yeah
1: and just kind of compartmentalize right. what's happening to focus yeah. on just the.
0: Yeah. Okay. The that was horrible, but I'm going to kill this guy first. You know what I mean? And yeah, yeah get no, yeah. to the bridge, get to the bridge and then I'll lose it. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> some sort of focus. Cause they, they were, yeah. a lot of them were extremely focused, you know, in what well, they were doing. And, and especially at the time at hand, your perfect example was your, um, SOE agent in Norway that, you know, two days on a broken leg cross country skiing is pretty impressive.
1: Yeah. Well, one of the things regarding the sand loss type stuff is that I I would think that the effects of standard, like non-mythos type of horrors uh, that would be encountered in war, that you might, as a keeper, kind of limit the types of things that would then result of sand losses. You know, you're not going to necessarily become… Uh, hydrophobic (laughs) because, you know, your buddy just, you know, had his head shot off. It's, you know, you want to keep it to more simple things of what are the majority of the things that happen to soldiers in those environments. They become sensitive to loud noises. They have potential for flashback type stuff. You know, PTSD is actually a very complicated, multi-layered condition.
0: Right, especially in the first world war, a lot of uh vets coming back uh had horrible ticks, and when a tick is not really a, a, a just word for it, where no, I mean, it was like it, a whole
2: it, 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 yeah, tremors and and like whole a, body
0: shaking. body spasm yeah, yeah. kind of thing yeah. that that was very very common at the time, um, which mm-hmm. thankfully we don't see very much nowadays, but. I'm not sure if that was more. I think it's more due to the fact that we don't handle uh, potentially stressful events like that in the same manner that they did before, which is like yeah. not at all. So,
1: yeah. It, but I would limit the effects of the sanity table. You know, pick out the ones that actually make sense to happen because these are, you know, horrible, gruesome things that nobody should have to be dealing with, but they don't make you doubt your grip on or they don't make you doubt the actual reality of right the universe yeah um, which that's kind of why I I'm okay with the idea of ridiculous uh, phobias or fetishes that pop up you know randomly it's cuz you're your faith in the actual reality of of creation has just been completely turned upside yeah, down. Yeah, I, I, so. I think
2: there's, there's the potential for you know, a character to become very disconnected from reality and, and possibly nihilistic as a result of the horrors of war. Uh, but it's, yeah, you, you're mm-hmm. right. It's, it's less, uh, you know, a question of sort of seeing behind the curtain and seeing the universe for something as it is, and more a question of losing faith in, you know, the, 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 um, the, the purpose and the goodness of human existence um and yeah uh, mm. certainly i think again the call of cthulhu sanity system can can deal with that but you know, as you say it's you know you as the keeper or you know player should work together to to choose the appropriate effects you know from the sanity system uh for your character at that time um and i i don't think that's something that you should do you know just within the context of war um you know i i think you know Uh, As a keeper um, and as a player in in any Call of Cthulhu game, you should always, you know, look for what is an appropriate uh, reaction to a matter of insanity. Mm -hmm. Uh, And sometimes, you know, it's not at all obvious and sometimes rolling on the random table is fun. But if it's a particular series of events that's taken you to the situation, then, you know, choosing or crafting the perfect response to it can be a very potent thing for the game.
0: Also, uh, another thing to remember yeah. is that some of these insanities that you might incur would have very real, real-world consequences. You know, for instance, if you were uh, you were in a firefight or a battle, and then you um, you turn tail and run because you got paranoia or 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 something of that nature, you know, and your your inclination was to run away from the danger as fast as possible. Well, then afterwards, you very likely could be charged with cowardice, especially during the mm-hmm. First World and and shot on site you know i mean they didn't they didn't put up with that very much and so i uh, a lot of people lost their lives for that alone oh yes, where they may they may not be cowards by any stretch of the imagination but i mean they just broke and you know yeah. they had no control over them running the other direction but because they did they're now labeled as a coward and are either severely ostracized but in many cases uh executed on the spot yeah
2: yeah, see, I mean the human mind has got its limits and sometimes it breaks. Mhm.
1: What a cherry role-playing game <laughs> we've decided to focus on in our great gaming career, isn't it? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, well, it's
0: it's nice that we can sit here and contemplate all these horrors and not have to really deal with it. It makes our lives a little bit.
2: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I you know the, the the more research that I've done for World War Cthulhu, the more I've appreciated the fact that you know I, I you know the, the, these are fantastic things to read about. They're fantastic things to role-play, but dear God, am I glad I've never had to. Live through any of this stuff, yeah, yeah,
0: no kidding. Uh, <laughs> what about let's go let's go off rails here a little bit. So far, we've been talking about modern conflict and twentieth century warfare and whatnot, but I mean, there are options for playing, you know, Cthulhu Evictus or um, Cthulhu Dark Ages, and how different would it be for a war setting to be in that time frame? I mean, would would anything really change other than the methodology of killing each other is what I'm asking. You know what I mean? On, on a game level term, you know, I'm, I'm not focusing on, on, oh, well they're fighting with swords. We, I think we get that, but are we, is there going to be a real difference between the sand mechanics that we just talked about in 20th century, as opposed to the 13th century, or are they going to be pretty much level up?
2: Well, I, I think one thing might be the fact that, you know, battles at those times, I suppose, tended to be more discreet, entities that you know there wasn't necessarily you know the, the the long drawn out intense conflicts uh, that you'd think of you know from the the first world War, second World War that you know that, that it was perhaps a bit more rare for people to be you know involved in extended um, you know, periods of battle like that.
0: That's a good point.
1: Supply lines are going to be slower. They're going to be a lot less efficient on things.
0: Well, they're going to be much more contained as well. The battle itself it mm-hmm. typically happened at a location on this yeah. field was where this happened. And it didn't usually last more than two or three days at the outside, you know, so that yeah. and that is one thing. But I mean, aside from that, I mean, I guess witnessing bloody gore is still, I would think gore, you know.
1: Yeah, I, I would think that people of a, that kind of era might actually even be more jaded towards seeing that kind of, uh, you know, human devastation because the entirety of the combat is directly in front of you when you're fighting somebody. Yeah. You don't have the privilege of being, you know, 50 yards away and just You know, you squeeze the trigger and the guy falls over. There is no choice but to be two feet away and drive a sword into him and you feel it. At the
0: same time, though, you end up with the fact that depending on the society you were a part of, the violence was much more common. You know so you, i mean mm-hmm. well not not just
2: violence but mortality in general yeah that, the, the death know, the, is what i should say yeah I yeah mean, the, 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 no i was just gonna say that yeah yeah with disease and uh and you know higher infant mortality rates and so on uh, you know people wouldn't be as as sheltered from death uh, as they are in the modern day that death is much more a part of everyday
0: life right and especially yeah. in maybe a society. Perhaps this might be a lone example, but probably not. Uh, Like the Vikings, whose whole economic system was based upon, you know, raiding other civilizations, you know, uh, whether it was England or uh, back into Russia. Um, I mean, so they were the majority of the men and women in that society were used to either killing or witnessing people being killed or or dying horrible deaths. So, I mean, I, I guess you would have to take into account, you know, and I'm sure the rules cover that to some point where you're kind of inured to most forms of witnessing the death. I mean, bring out your dead day was a was a real thing at some point or another. Mm. So I mean, I don't know maybe
2: yeah, I mean even if there weren't already rules in the setting for that, I'd be inclined to to use something like that. yeah, you know, something along the lines, of the experience packages uh, from from seventh ed uh, so that yes your your character was not phased uh, by dead bodies and gore, right, mhm, yeah. I think that would just make sense, yeah, I don't but, know. yeah say say the, say the whole yeah you know, say the the madness and the insanity for the mythos because no one ever gets used to that, right, I agree,
1: yeah, exactly, see, so, yeah, one thing I think would be kind of interesting to see is whenever they come up or I'm not even. Can not even remember who it is that's doing it the colonial
0: era?
2: Oh yes, that's um oh. That's not cubicle, is no, it? No, 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 it's is uh, is uh, it 60, 60 stone
0: press. Yeah, 60 stone press is who's doing it. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Okay, yeah. Yeah.
1: But yeah, I think the colonial era uh setting, you know, a, a revolutionary war
0: American colonial a read Game all. would be Yeah. US colonial. Yeah. yeah. Not not British colonial.
1: I wasn't sure exactly what it was actually labeled as from a uh, British point of view. uh,
2: But yes. Yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely American colonial.
0: Okay. Um, Also uh, along that same timeline, and this might take a bit more work, but I've always been interested in um, like the East India company or um, something like a, uh, You know, like a Joseph Conrad-esque type of uh, Call of Cthulhu game where you're in, uh, you know, uh, deepest, darkest, heart of Africa kind of setting during Mm -hmm. uh, gaslight or after where that could be because you're already set aside. You know, you're already isolated in more sense than one. You know, you're, you're isolated by population because you're the only Europeans in this area. And then you're isolated by geography because it might be you might be in the jungle or you might be on this one river mm-hmm. or something, um, and then have these horrible, horrible things come up out of that. Um, similar mm-hmm. to you know similar to Lord Jim or uh, or Heart of Darkness, I, I oh, think yes. that would be a yeah. good setting as well because those are already pretty horrific already. You know, and then you add some, you just take it and twist it a little bit, yeah. and it, it wouldn't be very difficult to. To change that into a more um, mythos setting, as opposed to just a, a yeah crappy setting, yeah, it,
1: it's hard enough surviving through that environment without stumbling across a uh, a colony of uh, serpent men.
0: Right, exactly. Or having uh, you know having Kurtz not be just a a person, but be a cultist who's leading a death cult of some sort. Yes. You know, or an avatar <laughs> of, or an avatar of neal at the tip right which would fit perfectly with that story i mean he could have just said that and it would have made sense and we yeah. would all have been like, yeah okay that makes perfect sense to us you know so it's not that far out of out of whack you know um what about talking about um how about since we're doing war right let's do uh let's do modern because we uh, we're just not there yet you know um i don't know of any straight up modern warfare uh settings yet as of yet for for call of cthulhu do, do well, can y'all uh, think of, can you well i i things? i seem to
2: i seem to remember um when there were some play tests going on at the new delta green at uh, the continuum convention that's, i attended last year the the sample scenario that they were play testing was set in modern day afghanistan Yep, yeah,
0: that's very true i forgot about that one that's a good point um yeah but it, the modern day warfare would bring in a whole nother um aspect that that separation of target to killer you know what i mean you have that sometimes mm-hmm. you could have miles or or half a planet away from where the actual uh violence is occurring between the person pulling the trigger and the person who's getting killed so that might have something to do you know especially modern day drone warfare where there's no telling where the guy flying the drone actually is
1: yeah yeah and and there's just plain automated
0: systems yeah that's true
1: you know where there actually isn't even a person other than the one that just hit go and go fighting somebody who's not me. and and there's the communication uh, is technology is far more sophisticated to where people that are on the ground actually can have communication among each other and with people that are back in a command position, you know, further back.
2: And I suppose one other complication as well is the fact that, you know, not always being able to tell who the, who the enemy is, you know, right. dealing with enemies embedded in civilian yeah. populations. And that, that that in some ways almost plays in with some of the classic Call of Cthulhu tropes in <laughs> that, you know, you, you're dealing with, you know, cultists and things that appear to be human, uh, d- embedded amongst, you know, the, uh, the, the uh, normal humanity. Uh, so the, 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 there's, mm-hmm. there's almost an uncomfortable parallel of that there, you know, that, that, that paranoia of no, you're know, not really being able to tell, you know who you know, who is is what. Yeah, not being able to trust anybody. The other complication I can see with using a modern setting like this is the fact that you know, when you're you're dealing with Call of Cthulhu scenarios set during the Second or First World War or all the conflicts and that. You know, you're not likely to be playing with people who have actually been involved with them. Yeah, uh, whereas, you know, yeah. whereas now, I mean, you know, even if someone you know, isn't a veteran of one of these conflicts, they might have friends or family who are, you know, they might have very you know, strong ties with the military. And it you know, calls for a... A degree of sensitivity, perhaps, and, you know, uh, well, it, a greater degree of understanding.
0: Your, it brings up your, your position earlier when you said you need to be careful whenever you try and give the Nazis an out by giving them the mythos, you know, as to why they acted this way. And uh, especially if you're playing with with someone who might have been a veteran and then you bring up a, a current conflict and then, you know, oh, well, these guys did this because they were cultists. And it's like, no, they did that because they're real. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> so ex- you exactly. might have some, mm-hmm. some very real real world strife in your group as opposed to uh some uh player strife you know um so let's let's yeah. gloss over modern then because i i don't want to touch on that at all that's just too iffy yeah. but what yeah, about? A- I, I agree with you there i think that's that's just a uh waiting a mistake waiting to happen but yeah. if we go to the future settings for call of cthulhu you know we've got stuff like cthulhu tech and the void and um what is the other one uh dan um um, uh, Cthulhu Rising, is it? No, yeah, no. Cthulhu Rising. Um, Thank you. That's yeah, what I was thinking. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, most of these are, are combat based, oddly enough, which I think is, it's kind of humorous considering the topic, but also how, I, I guess that's just the way it's evolved, but a, a lot of these are, are more. Combat-based systems, like you know, Cthulhu Tech, you got mechs, and st- or is that the Void? I can't remember which one. Mm-hmm. But either way, I mean, some of these you have mechs, and some of these you're part of like a, a some sort of galactic force, you know, or whatever. Um, but yeah, are, the
1: Void is space-based, right. and Cthulhu Tech is the a, on Earth Robotech kind right. of concept.
0: But I, I think it's interesting how these games they they've gone ahead and pulled in that unity of the. Of the uh, the fighting force as their basis, you know that's like the starting point for these uh, games. Mm-hmm. So that you you're yeah. already there and you're already gives you that group cohesion as opposed to the classic twenty setting for Call of Cthulhu, where you know you could just be some ragtag group of, of who knows what that's thrown together.
2: Yeah. Now, not having played any of these games, uh, yeah, you'll have to guide me on this. But uh, is is one difference with them potentially that y- you're uh, openly fighting the mythos? Yes. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, that's that's something that, that you know, we 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 haven't really seen in any of the the settings or games we've talked about so far. The fact that you know, even where you, you know, even in the cases of some, things like World War Cthulhu and and Delta Green, um, where you do have military action against the Mythos, it's a very covert thing done yeah, under so the, the cover of other activities.
0: Right. Well, except for maybe Ahkum yeah. Cthulhu, which is kind uh, of out. Yes. It's very very pulpy, but it's it's out in your face. You know, it's like this is. This is the Nazis Fifth uh, Army Naval Division, which happens to be full of deep ones, you know what I mean, or something something of that ridiculous nature. Yes. But I mean that's it's kind of more of a pulp feel to it, whereas some of these games are not pulpy feeling. You know, they're they're just they're yeah. kind of hard.
1: Yeah, Cthulhu Tech doesn't feel very pulpy no, It's they're very dark it's and pretty brutal and gritty. Yeah. But yeah, the mythos is a publicly known threat. Right. And I
0: think that might be the big difference there, setting wise, like you brought up. Other than the fact that Set, mm-hmm. you know, hundreds or thousands of years in the future or whatnot, alternate, <laughs> whatever. But uh, they're, they're, yeah, it's just, yeah. yeah, it just brings it up in a different manner where you have, you know, you, you know that mythos is there and you're actively going against the mythos in a military setting, you know, as opposed to what we're talking about mainly, which is bringing that military setting into a typically non-military game.
2: Yeah, and it takes out any you know, potential ambiguities or you know the um, any divided loyalties or confusions or anything like that, and makes it very much about a fight for humanity's survival.
0: Right. Yeah, it gives you that group cohesion that you're, yeah. you you can uh, that you don't have at times. Um, not just because you're all part of. One thing, but you have definable target and it's that target that you're after and not this other target, you know, that might be them, but this one particular thing that you're going after. So you don't have, mm-hmm. you don't have the, uh, you know, friendly fire and, uh, accidentally killing civilians problem, you know, as you can in, in World War Two and World War One. you know, you, you have the definable object, which you're after. Or but you know, it's but but it's also
2: the fact that, you know, your enemy in it is so, you know, purely inhumanly evil that, you know, any restrictions that you might have about the morality of doing, you know, particularly horrible things to human targets are gone. And this then becomes, you know, total war by any means necessary, I assume.
0: That's true. So yeah, yeah, it's a good point. You know, would you in a situation like that? Would you necessarily take as much of a sand loss from blowing up a deep one as you would from blowing up a blowing up a a regular person? You know what I mean? Yeah. Or 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 destroying a ship according to the. Go ahead. Sorry, Dan.
1: According to the core rule book, you get a sanity gain by killing.
0: about that, yeah yeah because the, they handle sanity in a completely different manner but i guess we got a little off topic on that one i, I apologize but yeah hmm, something, something to think of since we're doing war i mean i thought i'd hit oh, yeah. all the, the 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 settings i could think of there uh, yeah i no, think, no, I think we... yeah go ahead scott sorry no i apologize
3: <laughs> no <okay. laughs>
2: I, I, I was just going to say, yeah, yeah, no, I think it's a very, very interesting counterpoint. Uh, that you know, every, everything else we've talked about before has been human war, and this is just war against the mythos. It's an entirely different thing, but it has enough similarity that um, you know, it, it, I, I think it provides, yeah, you know, like I say, a very interesting counterpoint to what we've discussed so far.
1: Yeah, I do like the idea of having that as an option to say, okay, let's. Try something a little different. We'll go to a future thing, and yeah, the Mythos stuff is now an open threat.
0: It's come out of the shadows, yeah, it could, it could and po- we are screwed. Post-apocalyptic kind of thing, you know, like you yep. failed at mass, and a hundred mm. years later, this is where we're left. You know,
3: <laughs> yeah,
0: something horrible like that. I've always wanted to do one of those games where the players completely and utterly fail at a campaign, and then you fast forward it, you know, a couple of hundred years to let them play the dystopian version of that <laughs> thing, setting. Oh, nice.
1: <laughs> and not necessarily even tell them that that's what you're right. doing. You can just have a new campaign of, okay, next one, uh, let's try like a future thing. It was, And let them f- figure out that it's because of what they did <laughs> in a previous campaign. See if you can, see if you can help me with this, though. There
0: was a game uh, that had settings for... Um, and I I read too many game settings. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> I might be confusing several of these here. I know that there's a game called The Barbarians of the Apocalypse, right? Which is a, yeah. a hash on uh, the Barbarians lower- of Lemuria, yeah, right. Um, and they have an absolutely fantastic uh, dystopian world generator, right? But I want to say that I had read somewhere where someone had created a Cthulhu dystopian generator, and I can't remember what game that was. <sighs> Um, oh gosh! Do, do either of you guys recall what that might have been? No, um, no, but I'm interested. <laughs> I know, right? Um, but either way, you can use the uh, the Barbarians of the Apocalypse um, dystopian generator that they have in their their core rulebook um, to create a pretty pretty fantastically awesome uh, dystopian world setting. And i I've, I've always wanted to do that. You know, after the, uh, if not playing in the future, then have the, the campaign end with the guys losing and then the next session pick up, you know, during the actual dystopian uh, crumbling of the world phase as well. That would be a, a lot of fun as well. That's mm-hmm. way off topic, but <laughs> just saying.
2: <laughs> well, I, I, again, there, there may be stuff coming out of Cubicle 7 in the not too distant future as part of the World War Cthulhu line, which may scratch that itch for you. Oh, that's even better.
0: Yeah, I see myself. I have to admit, not to not saying this just because you're on the phone or on the line with us, <laughs> but uh, I see myself spending some money with Cubicle Seven in the next year or two. Unfortunately, excellent. <laughs> uh, yeah, just because I really.
1: I wish I had the budget. I don't for all the stuff yeah, that is coming out of that company. I'm telling you, I
0: don't have the budget for it. But I, I'm going to have to get some of these books that are coming out that you're you're uh, hinting at because I really like that setting. The World War Cthulhu setting in general is fantastic. And uh, I think it would be a, just a load of fun to get some of these extra uh, areas, and especially the World War I one, I think that would be just great.
2: Well, when we've got more concrete details, I'll, I'll have to come back and, and fill you in on
0: all of them. Yes, please. That would be great. Yeah, absolutely.
1: We love hearing from our listeners, and we have lots of different ways you guys can
0: reach out to us. Our main contact email address is feedback at mu-podcast.com. We also have a Twitter account at mu-podcast, and you can join our REC channel on the feedback page of the website.
1: We've got our Providence, Rhode Island voicemail number. That's area code 401-400-0-MUP. That's 401-400-0687. You, we also have our SpeakPipe link located on the website. You can just click that, and through your computer or an iOS device, you can leave us a voicemail that way. Ask us a question, or just leave us a liner saying who you are. And I'm enrolled at the Miskatonic University Podcast. And with a hearty go pods for our home team, the Fighting Cephalopods.
0: Our website is mu-podcast.com, and you can find our show notes for this episode at mu-podcast.com/70. That's the number. 70.
2: Our forums are at com slash campus. Come join the community and be part of the conversations.
1: Thanks for joining us for another episode. Class is dismissed. The Call of Cthulhu roleplaying game is property of Chaosium, Inc. The written works of HP Lovecraft are held in the United States public domain. All other works mentioned in this podcast are the property of their respective owners. Original content of this show is copyright of the Miskatonic University podcast under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license.
0: I'm Keeper Murph, and to help us accomplish this, we brought in a ringer focused on World War II line lead for computer... Computer, really? Oh, already. Sorry, Dan.
1: I just brought in Chad, who just showed up. Is that Chad? Chad just. Is... Awesome timing! Hey, yeah. just
0: in time. Hey, yeah. yeah, we just did just <laughs> intro in, so that's great.
2: Oh, you did? Yes. <laughs> did you for
0: real? <laughs> like uh, five minutes serious.
2: ago? Two and a half Wait, yeah. Uh, sh- <laughs> well,
0: sh- <laughs> it's all good, man. I'm Keeper John, and in this episode War, we're gonna to cover topics that use combat as a setting, backdrop or character history. How'd that come across?